A Mouthful of Air, a poetry podcast with Mark McGuinness. Here follow some verses upon the burning of our house. July 10th, 1666, by Anne Bradstreet. In silent night, when rest I took, For sorrow near I did not look, I wakened was with thundering noise, And piteous shrieks of dreadful voice, That fearful sound of fire and fire, Let no man know is my desire. I, starting up, the light did spy, And to my God my heart did cry, To strengthen me in my distress, And not to leave me succourless. Then coming out, behold a space, The flame consume my dwelling place. And when I could no longer look, I blessed his name that gave and took, that laid my goods now in the dust. Yea, so it was, and so t'was just. It was his own, it was not mine. Far be it that I should repine. He might of all justly bereft, but yet sufficient for us left. When by the ruins oft I passed, My sorrowing eyes aside did cast, And here and there the places spy, Where oft I sat and long did lie. Here stood that trunk, and there that chest, There lay that store I counted best. My pleasant things in ashes lie, And then behold, no more shall I. Under thy roof no guest shall sit, nor at thy table eat a bit. No pleasant tale shall e'er be told, nor things recounted done of old. No candle e'er shall shine in thee, no bridegroom's voice e'er heard shall be. In silence ever shalt thou lie. Adieu, adieu, all's vanity." Then straight again my heart to chide. And did thy wealth on earth abide? Didst fix thy hope on mouldering dust? The arm of flesh didst make thy trust? Raise up thy thoughts above the sky, That dunghill mists away may fly. Thou hast a house on high erect, Framed by that mighty architect, With glory richly furnished, Stands permanent, though this be fled. It's purchased and paid for, too, By him who hath enough to do, A price so vast as is unknown, Yet by his gift is made thine own. There's wealth enough, I need no more. Farewell, my pelf, Farewell, my store, 
The world no longer let me love. My hope and treasure lie above. This is a remarkable poem about loss and coming to terms with loss. It's what's called an occasional poem. Poets have written poems to commemorate all kinds of occasions, from personal events such as a wedding or the birth of a child or a funeral, or even sitting down to reread a favourite book. They've also written them about big public occasions such as coronations or battles or other newsworthy events. In the 17th century, which is when this poem was written, there was quite a lot of occasional verse, including John Milton's On the Late Massacre in Piedmont, Andrew Marvel's An Horatian Ode Upon Cromwell's Return from Ireland, and Sir John Suckling's Upon My Lady Carlisle's Walking in Hampton Court Garden. But few occasions can be as painful as this one, the destruction of the poet's home by fire. Of course, this kind of tragedy was all too common in an age when most buildings were made of wood, and heating, cooking and lighting all depended on kindling fires and flames inside these wooden structures. The date of this poem, 1666, obviously makes us think of the Great Fire of London, which happened less than two months after Anne Bradstreet's home burned down when 13,000 houses, about 15% of all the housing in London, were destroyed by fire. And lots of people were ruined, made homeless and displaced by the fire. And it would be the end of the 17th century before fire insurance became available in England, partly in response to the Great Fire of London. So, if your house burned down in 1666, that was it you had lost your house. And if your possessions were also destroyed by the fire, you had lost those too, and the wealth they contained. So people were living a much more precarious existence than us at this point. As the 17th century chronicler Frederick John Snell put it, he which at one o'clock was worth £5,000, and, as the prophet Seth, drank his wine in bowls of fine silver plate, had not by two o'clock so much as a wooden dish left to eat his meat in, nor a house to cover his sorrowful head. Snell was chronicling life in England, but at this point Anne Bradstreet did not live in England. She had been born in England, in Northampton in 1612, but in 1630 she emigrated to America, where she and her family were among the founders of the Massachusetts Bay Colony. And if life was precarious in England, it was even more precarious in New England. Now, there could be an argument that since life was more precarious and people were more accustomed to losing their homes to fire or seeing it happen to other people, that it was less devastating. And I find that about as convincing as the idea that before the advent of modern medicine, the high rate of infant mortality meant that people were much more used to children dying and didn't feel the loss so keenly. I mean, come on. 
they were human beings. There is more than enough poetry, including several poems by Bradstreet, to testify to the depths of pain that losing a child could cause at this time. And this poem does the same for the tragedy of seeing your home burned to the ground. And in Bradstreet's case, it was a substantial home and a substantial loss. We know that she came from a wealthy family who were able to maintain their wealth and status in Massachusetts. And we can pick up some clues to this in the poem. So she tells us it was big enough for her to have familiar places to sit and to lie and also to entertain guests at the table. She also refers to her pleasant things burnt to ashes. So if you are well off enough to have pleasant things, you are probably living, at least in the context of the time and place, a relatively comfortable middle-class existence. According to the scholar Anna Beer, in her terrific book Eve Bites Back, An Alternative History of English Literature, which focuses on female writers of the past, she has a chapter on Anne Bradstreet where she says that this house contained over 800 books which were consumed in the fire. And Beer points out that this would have been an extraordinary number for a New England household. I mean, Books were expensive consumer goods in the 17th century, so you'd have to be pretty affluent to own that number, even in London, let alone the New World. So this was a substantial loss. And, you know, we might wonder, how could she think of writing poetry at a time like this? Surely she would be far too consumed with grief and the practicalities of finding a new home. It's an uncomfortable thought, but Beer points out that as a well-to-do colonist, she probably had servants and possibly even slaves to help her with the practicalities. So finding the time to think might not have been as difficult as we would assume. But even in that case, how could she find the mental space to sit down and write a poem about the disaster? Well, if you've been listening to A Mouthful of Air from the beginning, you may recall that way back in episode one of the podcast, I talked about poetry as a way of making sense of the world. Poets often write poems when there's something that has upset their world order, when they've been shaken up by events, by joy, by grief, by jealousy, or a whole host of other emotions. And they turn to writing as a way of making sense of their experience and maybe trying to come to terms with it. And the poem can then perform a similar function for the reader. So I think what we can see here is Anne Bradstreet using poetry, using the act of writing as a way of coming to terms with her loss. And her Christian faith was clearly central to this process she and her family and her community were Puritans who followed a very strict form of Protestantism. And like many emigrants to the New World, greater freedom of worship was one of their motivations for leaving Europe. So, Bradstreet was a deeply committed Christian, and this is reflected in many of her poems. Sixteen years earlier, in 1650, a book of her poems was published in London, 
which made her not just the first female poet, but also the first North American author in any medium published in English. That collection included a poem titled The Vanity of All Worldly Things, where she contrasted the transience of earthly power, pleasures and possessions with the living crystal fount of Christianity. And this is a well-worn theme for many poets, Christian and otherwise. You know, all is vanity. We should turn our minds to higher things and have faith in God or in philosophy or whatever it is that they consider to be enduring and true. And it's relatively easy to write a poem like that from the comfort of your study or your library when you have the leisure to contemplate the hardships of the world from a distance. But it's a completely different question to write it shortly after you have seen your own home and your library burned to the ground. The facts of Bradstreet's autobiography are a little sketchy, but it's clear that she and her family endured great hardship as a result of losing her home. So we are reading the words of a poet who is really being tested in the fire and by the fire. Okay, let's take a closer look at the poem and see how Bradstreet tells the story and also works through her thoughts and her feelings and argues with herself in order to find some kind of resolution and solace amid the destruction. We have a very dramatic opening where she's woken in the silent night by a thundering noise, presumably the sound of the fire, as well as shrieks and shouts of fire. In silent night, when rest I took, for sorrow near I did not look, I wakened was with thundering noise and piteous shrieks of dreadful voice, that fearful sound of fire and fire, let no man know is my desire. I, starting up, the light did spy, and to my God my heart did cry, to strengthen me in my distress, and not to leave me succorless. So, Even before she's fully aware of the situation, when she's starting up out of her sleep and spies a light, her heart cries out to God to strengthen me in my distress. And then she comes out and she sees the fire eating away at the house. Then coming out, behold a space, the flame consume my dwelling place. And when I could no longer look, I blessed his name that gave and took, that laid my goods now in the dust. This is pretty extraordinary, isn't it? I mean, maybe it's easy to credit that a godly person like Bradstreet would instinctively cry out to God to strengthen me in my distress. But to spend a space, a little time, watching your own home burning down until you can bear it no longer and have to look away. And then, in that moment, to bless his name that gave and took, that laid my goods now in the dust? To do that in what she tells us was the heat of the moment sounds like an uncommon conviction and devotion, even for a 17th century Puritan. And... 
Maybe she's tidying up the experience a little bit for the page and for her audience, but I don't get the sense that she's using too much poetic license here. You know, quite a few poets give the impression that they are taking liberties with the truth, but I don't get that feeling from Bradstreet. I feel that we can basically take her at her word that this was her response, if not in the very moment, then at least shortly afterwards. And when I could no longer look, I blessed his name that gave and took, that laid my goods now in the dust. Good Christians will of course recognise I blessed his name that gave and took as an allusion to the book of Job in the Old Testament. Here are the words of the King James Bible published the year before Bradstreet was born. The Lord gave and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So Job was an upright and prosperous man who was blessed with goods and cattle and a house and children and family and friends and so on. But in the story, God tests his faith by allowing Satan to take away all his wealth and possessions, to kill his family and his servants, and finally to take away his health, afflicting him with painful boils all over his body. And Job is remarkably forbearing and patient. But eventually, even he snaps and he starts berating God for treating him so badly, especially as he has always striven to lead a virtuous life. And God actually answers him, speaking from the heart of the whirlwind and making it very clear who is boss. And in the end, Job gives in and asks for forgiveness, saying, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. So Job is an emblem of submission to the will of God. And Bradstreet clearly expects us to pick up on the reference when she says, I blessed his name that gave and took, and describes herself like Job in the dust. I, I find this quite remarkable. Firstly, that in the midst of her distress, she reaches out instinctively to a text to the Bible for consolation. And also, there's an incredible compression in the way that she expresses it, getting the whole of the story of Job and fitting it snugly over her own situation in a couple of lines. And when I could no longer look... I blessed his name that gave and took, that laid my goods now in the dust. And of course, the syntactic compression mirrors the swiftness of her thought and her emotional reaction in the moment. It's pretty amazing, if we can take her word for it, that she can go so quickly from horror to acceptance, or at least striving for acceptance. But if we recall, that was also Job's initial response. And he was eventually tested beyond endurance. So I think we can sense some ambiguity and tension in her relationship with God, even here. And the verse form is integral to this effect. So the poem is written in iambic tetrameter. Titum, 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 titum. Four titums. One less than the iambic pentameter that we probably all remember from school. So it's a short line that leaves no room for embellishment and is ideally suited to compression, particularly 
if you write it in rhyming couplets like this. And when I could no longer look, I blessed his name that gave and took, that laid my goods now in the dust. Yea, so it was, and so twas just. Can you hear how clipped these lines are? How spare? Nearly every word is a single syllable. There are no adjectives, no ornamentation, and absolutely no self-pity. In another of her poems, the author to her book, Bradstreet describes her own poetry as made of homespun cloth. So she's deliberately adopting a very plain style, in keeping with the plain dress and the sober manners of the Puritan community. And she has been criticised for being too formal and conventional in her versification, just as she's been criticised for being too subservient to the ruling patriarchal ideology of the time, where women were expected to know their place, and that place was in the home. But another way of looking at it is to see her use of this very regular rhyming couplet form as a way of imposing order on chaos. When you put a thought into a tetrameter rhyming couplet, it sounds truer than true. The metre and the rhyme give it rhetorical emphasis that wouldn't be there if it were flopping all over the page in free verse, or even in the more ample and flexible blank verse pentameters of the kind that we looked at a few episodes ago in the verse of Shakespeare, Milton and Wordsworth. And the tightness and the order of the verse form contrast sharply, and I think deliberately on the poet's part, with the chaos of the fire and the eruption of thoughts and feelings it provokes. And this tension resonates throughout the whole poem, between fear and anger and chaos and doubt on the one hand, and on the other the desire for order, for succour, for obedience and for the consolation of faith. And it's particularly interesting to contrast Bradstreet's writing with Milton's, because, of course, he was another great Puritan writer of the period. He was an almost exact contemporary of Bradstreet. And if you recall the passage of his masterpiece, Paradise Lost, that we looked at back in episode 30, you really couldn't find a more different style of writing. Milton uses longer pentameter lines and extravagantly long sentences that overflow the line endings so that a single sentence can be stretched over a dozen lines or more. Whereas Bradstreet's shorter tetrameter lines are made of short, compressed sentences and nearly all of them are end-stopped, meaning that the end of the line is also the end of a phrase or sentence. Milton also uses lots of fancy polysyllabic vocabulary drawn from Latin and Greek. But as we've seen, Bradstreet uses simpler, shorter words in a self-consciously plain style. So, I think Bradstreet is much more what we would expect from a plain-spoken Puritan. And maybe Milton has some explaining to do. 
Okay, before we move on, I'd just like to highlight one more terrific example of Bradstreet's use of compression in this passage. Listen for the line that comes right after the goods lying in the dust. And when I could no longer look, I blessed his name that gave and took, that laid my goods now in the dust. Yea, so it was, and so twas just. That line, yea, so it was, and so twas just, is a stunning example of grammatical compression that is also an emotional compression. So she starts the line with the phrase, yea, so it was, two perfect iambic feet, titum, titum, yea, so it was. And then the second half of the line is another two perfect iambics, and so twas just. And the two phrases, so it was and so twas, are identical in terms of their meaning. Twas is just a contraction of it was. But metrically, that contraction is vital because it allows Bradstreet to insert the word just at the end of the line. And that little word changes everything. Saying so it was is a plain statement of fact, and we can probably read in a little stoic resignation, given the context. But to then say, so twas just, in other words, it was just that it was so. It was fair and right and proper that it was so, goes against all our human instincts. Faced with disaster, it feels natural for us to rage and despair and to feel a sense of grievance and injustice. But Bradstreet deliberately resists this instinct with that brilliant contraction so that the perfectly regular meter steamrollers over it and lands on that word just. To appreciate her technique here, see what happens to the line if you don't contract it was to twas. Yea, so it was, and so it was just. Can you hear how difficult it is to read that line and how it loses energy when the meter is broken up by the extra syllable? But tweak that little syllable and the whole line snaps into place. Yea, so it was, and so twas just. And it's not just about preserving a regular rhythm for its own sake. I also think we can feel the speaker stiffening her resolve, just pulling in her stomach a little bit and tightening those muscles and resolving, yes, I am going to bear it. I'm not going to complain. And she carries on in this vein. It was his own. It was not mine. Far be it that I should repine. He might of all justly bereft but yet sufficient for us left. So she's saying the whole house and everything in it belonged to God. It was never mine, so I can't protest. And he justly, there's that word again, took it from us, i.e. her and her family, but yet sufficient for us left. He left us enough to manage with. And this attitude is something that modern cognitive behavioural psychotherapists would thoroughly approve of. She's looking the facts in the face, but she's not catastrophizing, as the therapist Albert Ellis would have put it. Or to quote an insurance advertising campaign from a few years ago, she's not making a drama out of a crisis. 
So, like a good Christian, she is making a heroic effort to take God's side against her own sense of injustice and despair. And it might be hard for those of us without her faith to relate to this. Or there may well be Christians who could say, well, I'm not sure I could be as godly and forbearing as this. But if it's starting to sound a bit inhuman and unrelatable, then the next few lines make it clear how deeply she feels the loss. When by the ruins oft I passed, my sorrowing eyes aside did cast, and here and there the places spy, where oft I sat and long did lie. Here stood that trunk, and there that chest, there lay that store I counted best. My pleasant things in ashes lie, and then, behold, no more shall I. Under thy roof no guest shall sit, nor at thy table eat a bit. No pleasant tale shall e'er be told, nor things recounted done of old. No candle e'er shall shine in thee, no bridegroom's voice e'er heard shall be. In silence ever shalt thou lie. Adieu, adieu, all's vanity. I don't know how any of us could read or listen to this passage and not be moved by it. And it's natural to put ourselves in her place, is it not? And imagine wandering around the ruins of our own home and thinking, that's where we all sat round the table together. That's where I used to sit and watch TV. That's where all my favourite china or books or DVDs were kept. Interestingly, Bradstreet doesn't mention those 800 books which were in the house. And you would think, as a writer, she would have missed those particularly keenly. And this may be a small act of self-censorship. Anna Beer points out in Eve Bites Back that the governor of the Massachusetts colony where Bradstreet lived passed judgment that the loss of understanding and reason, presumably some form of mental illness, of a woman called Anne Hopkins had been caused by her devoting herself wholly to reading and writing. And the governor said her husband should have intervened and insisted she put down her books and devote more time to housework and child-rearing. So I'm wondering whether it might not have been prudent for Bradstreet to flaunt her learning by lamenting her books in the poem. Anyway, even if we can't go all the way in accepting Bradstreet's theological justification for her loss... What this passage does show is that her consolation is not one lightly, because she's clearly feeling this grief very deeply. And then, in typical fashion, she starts to argue with herself. Then straight again my heart to chide, and did thy wealth on earth abide? Didst fix thy hope on mouldering dust? So this argument with herself, this tension between the joys and the comforts of earthly life and the idea of submitting to God's will is very typical of her poetry. But she doesn't go round in circles forever. At the end of the poem, we get this amazing vision of the house that she believes is being built for her in heaven. 
Raise up thy thoughts above the sky, that dunghill mists away may fly. Thou hast a house on high erect, framed by that mighty architect, with glory richly furnished, stands permanent, though this be fled. And maybe we don't have Anne Bradstreet's faith. Or even if we do, maybe we wouldn't have her strength of character. We may reach for our Bible at some point, but first of all, we'd be reaching for the insurance company's hotline. But this vision is still pretty glorious, isn't it? This house above the sky with glory richly furnished. There's wealth enough. I need no more. Farewell, my pelf. Farewell, my store. The world no longer let me love. My hope and treasure lie above. And like I say, we may not share her certainty that this house really does await her in heaven. But the house is there for all of us to see in the poem. It's risen like a phoenix from the ashes, if she will permit me a pagan simile. So what we have here is not only a Christian taking comfort in her faith in the face of disaster, but also a poet using the act of writing to work out what she thinks and feels and believes and wrestling with herself and finding consolation in poetry as well as in faith. Here follow some verses upon the burning of our house. July 10th, 1666, by Anne Bradstreet. In silent night, when rest I took, For sorrow near I did not look, I wakened was with thundering noise And piteous shrieks of dreadful voice, That fearful sound of fire and fire, let no man know is my desire. I, starting up, the light did spy, and to my God my heart did cry to strengthen me in my distress and not to leave me succorless. Then coming out, behold a space, the flame consume my dwelling place. And when I could no longer look, I blessed his name that gave and took, that laid my goods now in the dust. Yea, so it was, and so t'was just. It was his own, it was not mine. Far be it that I should repine. He might of all justly bereft, but yet sufficient for us left. When by the ruins oft I passed, my sorrowing eyes aside did cast, And here and there the places spy, Where oft I sat and long did lie. Here stood that trunk, and there that chest, There lay that store I counted best. My pleasant things in ashes lie, And then behold, no more shall I. Under thy roof no guest shall sit, nor at thy table eat a bit. 
No pleasant tale shall e'er be told, nor things recounted done of old. No candle e'er shall shine in thee, no bridegroom's voice e'er heard shall be. In silence ever shalt thou lie. Adieu, adieu, all's vanity. Then straight again my heart to chide, and did thy wealth on earth abide? Didst fix thy hope on mouldering dust? The arm of flesh didst make thy trust? Raise up thy thoughts above the sky, that dunghill mists away may fly. Thou hast a house on high erect, framed by that mighty architect, with glory richly furnished, stands permanent, though this be fled. It's purchased and paid for too by him who hath enough to do, a price so vast as is unknown, yet by his gift is made thine own. There's wealth enough, I need no more. Farewell, my pelf, farewell, my store. The world no longer let me love. My hope and treasure lie above. Anne Bradstreet was a poet who was born Anne Dudley in Northampton, England, in 1612 and died in 1672 in North Andover, Massachusetts. She married Simon Bradstreet at the age of 16 and the couple had eight children. In 1630, while still a teenager, she emigrated with her parents and her own family to become some of the founding members of the Massachusetts Bay Colony. Her first collection of poetry, The Tenth Muse, lately sprung up in America, was published in London in 1650 and made her not just the first published female poet in English, but also the first North American author published in English. She wrote epic, political and religious verse, as well as more personal writings that were mostly published after her death. She is regarded as a foundational figure in American literature and a pioneering female poet in more than one sense. A Mouthful of Air is a poetry podcast hosted by Mark McGuinness. New episodes are released every other Tuesday. If you enjoy the show and you'd like to help me reach more poetry lovers, you can do this by telling a friend about it or by taking a few seconds to leave a rating or even a brief review on Apple Podcasts. If you would like a full transcript of every episode sent to you via email, including the poem text, you can sign up for this at 
amouthfulofair.fm slash subscribe. If you'd like to follow the show on social media, you can find all the links as well as a full episode archive at amouthfulofair.fm. The music and soundscapes for the show are created by Javier Whaler. Sound production is by Breaking Waves and visual identity by Irene Hoffman. A Mouthful of Air is produced by the 21st Century Creative, with support from Arts Council England via a National Lottery Project grant. Thank you for listening. I'll be back soon with another poem. Thank you.